0: Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast where we look at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read... Watch and play. I'm your host, Mike Pershan. I teach English at McEwan University, and this episode about Raiders of the Lost Ark is actually a lecture that I am giving to my students as a form of asynchronous learning for them to download whenever they want. It's available on YouTube as well, with all sorts of pretty pictures and a slideshow and my floating head. But I wanted to make it available as a podcast as well, and this is about the accessibility of education for my students, but it's also about freeing the I guess the democratization of education for people to have access to while those of you who may listen to this podcast will not get credit for involving yourself in this course by listening to this you get to benefit from the joy of learning which I think is great and I think it should be available to as many people uh, as we can make it available to so here comes the lecture so as promised we start with Raiders of the Lost Ark and and we're we're working with a textbook here called Looking at Movies and introduction to film and it's it's interesting to me that we've got those two words in the title of the textbook because the textbook talks about how people perceive these terms that movies as a term is sort of considered films that are popular, films that aren't necessarily worth our attention, films that are entertainment, not necessarily art. And I think many people would think of Raiders of the Lost Ark as a movie and not necessarily as film, or the other term that looking at movies talks about, which is cinema. I think that that's, that's reductive, and it it certainly ignores that the Academy Awards praised Raiders of the Lost Ark by awarding it best editing, best production design, best sound, best sound editing, best visual effects, and nominated it for best cinematography, best original score, best director. Those, that, that's that's one of the big ones. You get best director, that's a, that's a huge deal. And the award that everybody wants to win, best picture. Now, this film was nominated as best picture. So to think of it just as a popular film, as a piece of entertainment, is to ignore that a body of critics, whose job it is to say, this is one of the best things that this form of art produced in this year, that this film should get a ton of awards that it should be nominated for a bunch of them that that's that's a bunch and as i uh, as i was designing this course i was thinking hard about which movies i wanted to choose and my process involved going through the award winners for various categories of cinema of film of movies and going which ones which ones were nominated for or won all the, the, the ones that relate to the sort of formal film language that we're going to be talking about today and throughout this course. So the, the title of the, the text alone has this reference, looking at movies, and your textbook says, you know, we, we could have sit, called it something about film. I've got several film textbooks sitting right beside me, and I've got film art, an introduction, right? Film art, not movie art, but film art. And then I've got a history of narrative film, right? Not narrative movies. Uh, And that's where I think that looking at movies as a textbook is spot on in this assessment of how we use these terms. Movies are popular. Film is a little more artsy. Cinema is super artsy. These are the great movies. This is Citizen Kane. This is some weird foreign movie you've never heard of that was made by the Polish avant-garde. Raiders of the Lost Ark doesn't fall into the category. And... I've had some pushback from not only students, but my colleagues as well. Like, where are the classics in your, in your course? And my response is, I, I think that Raiders of the Lost Ark is a classic. First and foremost, because it's old. Uh, you know, and I would tell, talk, talk to my colleagues about this, and they go, oh, that's, that movie's not old. And I'm like, you're in denial. Um, it's old. It's, it's a classic now. And uh, it's classic for other reasons. And we're going to talk about the reasons why it's a classic today. What is a movie to begin with? What do we mean when we use the term movie? Beyond that idea of it as, as popular or not being popular, what do we mean by movie? Well, it's a form of popular entertainment. And I knew it was a form of popular entertainment because uh, I would look in the newspaper when I was when I was a kid... And if you were, you know, if you were trying to figure out where, what movies you were going to go see, you would look in your newspaper and they would have an entertainment section and it would have advertisements with the posters for the movies. And I remember when we would visit, because I grew up in Medicine Hat, which, you know, movies would come and go. But when we would visit family in Calgary, their newspaper would have these advertisements like the one that you're seeing here, where it said 52 weeks. Well, you know what 52 weeks adds up to. It's a year. 52 weeks and Raiders of the Lost Ark commences its second great year at the Russell Cinemas. Can you imagine today a movie being in the theater for a year? But this is an indicator from the past of how you know we measure the popularity of a film. Movies like Raiders of the Lost Ark and Star Wars would play on at small repertoire theaters for years after their release because home video wasn't as big a thing as it is today. And so, you know, if a movie was, was really popular, you went, you know, you, you ask somebody my age, I'm 49, you ask somebody my age about a movie that we loved when we were young, and we are going to tell you how many times we saw it in the theater. That was a badge of honor. That was a, bat, a moment of pride, right? How many times you saw it in the theater. And these advertisements would talk about, you know, Raiders has it all. The best two hours of pure entertainment anyone is going to find. A blockbuster on the order of Star Wars and Jaws. So popular art form, the most popular art form today. Well, that's that's tough because games are, video games are, are coming up fast on that. And I don't have the stats on that to say whether or not like it is the most popular art form that video games are, or that film is, and this is difficult too because, as your textbook indicates, what do we mean by a movie? Is it just the ones that we see at the at the cineplex? Is it the thing that we go to at the theater? Is it only does it only count as a movie if it's two hours long and it's encapsulated in that thing? Or what what do we think about something like Game of Thrones, which, as your text notes, if you binge watch, is a really long movie because it's really the same form of art but we we call one movie and we call the other one like tv show right so we've got these designations but if we were to include tv as a form of cinema as a form of film or movies then that might skew what the most popular art form is today but we can say without reservation that we love film we love movies we love watching our stories and, and obviously today, especially today, under COVID, we're not watching our movies in theaters. Right now, theater owners are in a moment of crisis, trying hard to get their audiences back. And most people are pretty content to just let streaming services like Netflix or Amazon Prime or Disney Plus fill their, their movie needs But, you know, you could watch Indiana Jones and, uh, you know, and this is interesting, right? Because it was originally titled Raiders of the Lost Ark. And now you'll see it billed as Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. The DVD that I have of this movie comes in this package. It's like Indiana Jones and. But when this movie was originally released, it was just Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, So, you know, film changes as it goes along. Sometimes the filmmakers come in and they tinker a bit. We're going to see that uh, later in the course and on the podcast with uh, Star Wars. So, a movie is a form of popular entertainment. It is also a narrative that tells a fictional story. And some people might say, wait, wait a second, What what about documentaries? Yeah, but for the purposes of this course, which is about narrative in film, we're focusing on fictional stories, even if... As we will see when we get to Black Klansmen, the story is based on a true story. Cinema is still engaged in a sort of fictional game. Um, The textbook does make a distinction. uh, Looking at movies as well, there are other types of this sort of thing. But even when you're making a documentary, there's still a sort of fictive uh, element that comes to play because of the way in which uh, cinematic language generates its narrative. So we get narrative uh, that tells a fictional story. And Raiders of the Lost Ark is certainly a fictional story. We we recognize that almost immediately. And then there's this idea of the movie as a narrative told in cinematic language. And your textbook talks about cinematic language, and I love this quotation, so I thought I would, I would share it for those who, you know, don't have access to it, those who are listening to you on the podcast. Because most movies seek to engage viewers' emotions and transport them inside the world presented on screen, the visual vocabulary of film is designed to play upon those same instincts that we use to navigate and interpret the visual and oral information of our real life this often imperceptible cinematic language composed not of words, but of myriad integrated techniques and concepts connects us to the story while deliberately concealing the means by which it does so. And I think though the, the conflation, the association of real life and what we're seeing on the screen is why we become so heavily invested in the narratives of, of film the film in cinematic narratives in a way that we don't and this isn't a books are better than movies or books are lesser than movies this is just a difference that i have observed that more often than not people will talk about Stuff that didn't happen in a movie as though it did because they are, they're, they're experiencing it in the same way that we, to a large degree, experience life. We're getting all this stimulus that is like life. It, it's sensory in a way that reading is not, even when uh, sensory imagery is involved. So what do we mean by cinematic language? Well, this is the, these are the building blocks of this entire course. I've been talking about the formal aspects of film a little bit earlier. And that is what we want to look at when we look at cinematic language. A narrative told in cinematic language. And, and this too is interesting to me because of a, a bit I read from a book called The Language of Film by Rod Whitaker. Rod Whitaker is probably better known as the fiction writer Trevannian. He, he wrote some sort of spy-type uh, fiction, which actually got turned into uh, a movie. He wrote um, a book called The Iger Sanction, and it was made into a movie with Clint Eastwood. And so Trevanian was a, his, his pen name, and he wrote this language of film, and it got cited in a book uh, about Pan's Labyrinth, which, as I, I told my students the other day, I did Pan's Labyrinth for my master's thesis. Early in the book, Rod Whitaker writes this. He says there are growing pressures now to take a more careful and formal look at film language. Not only is the film generally accepted as a major art, but its stuttering offspring, television, is increasingly filling the earlier roles of press and radio, as well as some of the more burdensome aspirin functions of film as mass entertainment. The languages of film and television have many points of identity. Although the younger medium has chosen to operate like illustrated radio and turgid vaudeville and may long be prevented from adopting the communicative sophistications of its parent by its economic structure and audience composition. We're past that now. I think television is as good as film as good as as what we think of as movies television possesses the formal potentials to become a major creative medium which i think it has the first step in the eventual maturation of television will be a formal emulation of film to which will be added a feeling for the special qualities of the television event immediacy for instance and the vulnerable posture of the audience member an even more urgent reason to study the language of film lies in the fact that more and more of the teaching of our children is being conducted through the audiovisual channels. This year, especially, kids doing their, their schooling online uh, here in, in, during the pandemic under COVID, right? They are being taught, get this, they are being taught through a language they have never studied, and what is more frightening, through one that their teachers have never studied. Now, this was written in 1970, and still film as a as a as a thing to study is is fringe is really you guys study film I can't believe that that's so neat it's either that's so neat I'd love to do that or really that's where my tax dollars go to there's this like sense of either like elation I wish I could do that or shock that that's worth our attention I think it is worth our attention the trouble is is that most of the time that people teach film they teach it like it's a moving novel But film has its own language, its own formal aspects that are distinct from the novel, distinct from the short story, distinct from comic books. It is film. We can compare film, and looking at movies does talk about this, is we can compare it to all sorts of different art forms, but in the end, it's its own. It's its own art form. And we're going to use Raiders of the Lost Ark as a way of understanding this cinematic language. So... Cinematic language begins with mise-en-scene, which is French for more or less everything in the frame. So everything that's in the frame is mise-en-scene, which makes this a troublesome term. But I like to think of it primarily, and I think the textbook does, and many textbooks about film will treat mise-en-scene like it's about production design, which is sets and costume design, what are people wearing, the stuff that's in the background. But mise-en-scene can also include, uh, in certain studies, cinematography and lighting. Um, But for our purposes, we're just going to simplify it by saying we're talking about the conventions of production design and uh, costume design. And right away, I mean, Harrison Ford, as Indiana Jones, as this uh, adventuring archaeologist who goes after supernatural treasures, the costume alone has become iconic, and costume designer Deborah Nadulman talked about this and she says it, it any any costume designer will tell you if you do your job really well, people just buy what's on there as though it's the thing that this person wears, and of course that's what they'd wear. Uh, and we sometimes treat these things as though they are they are they were ordained from on high. Like how could Indiana Jones look like look any other way? Like Indiana Jones wouldn't be Indiana Jones without his hat. And and if you remove the hat then he's not gonna be Indiana Jones. But the, the decision to Have that particular hat came down to a number of particular choices. And we just don't see these things. This is about cinematic language being largely invisible. When people do their jobs well in film, we don't notice what they've done. And we're not supposed to notice the costume in that way. We don't go, well, that's beautiful. And sort of sit there and think about it a great deal. We just go, oh, that makes perfect sense. And it becomes a form of shorthand, visual shorthand for who this character is. And Deborah Nadulman talks has talked about how she wanted it to look as though Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones had worn this outfit many, many times. They probably slept in it, and they distressed the costume with a penknife. They screwed the hat up by like sitting on it and running it through the dirt. Uh, and this was a hat that was bought at a really high-end haberdashery in uh, in London. And so it was like it's not a cheap hat, but they needed to they needed to get it looking ugly, get it looking like it's been worn, Uh, because that tells us something about the character. Costume design can tell us something about the character. Earlier I mentioned that light is sometimes considered in in the understanding of mise-en-scene. And one of the things I asked my students to do when they were looking at Raiders of the Lost Ark is to just pay attention to the first 10 minutes And the reason that I want them to do this is because of a book called Reading the Silver Screen where the author says that the first 10 minutes of Raiders of the Lost Ark acts like an overture at the opera. That it basically establishes what you're going to see for the rest of the film. It's like, if you like the first 10 minutes of this movie, you're gonna love the rest of the movie. And a good movie does that. A good movie will begin in a way that sets the tone, sets the world rules, rules by which the, the universe will obey for the, you know, the rest of the movie, unless it's doing some sort of, like, dream switcheroo. Right away, we get the adventuring archaeologist, and, and then we get the, this moment with this trap. And the way that the film indicates the danger zone here is blue lighting. And again, we don't really think about that. We don't think about that cool light coming into that cave space, that that ruined space. But it's repeated over and over again, and it's that consistency of that lighting that we go, Oh, okay, I I see what's going on. There's something about that light that's a problem. And when Harrison Ford sticks his hand up into this blue light that's shining into the darkness, sets off the trap, we, we don't go, well, why did that happen? We go, oh, he stuck his hand into the blue light and, and set off the trap. Like, it, it makes cinematic sense. So mise-en-scene can involve those sorts of things as well. And then the sets themselves in, in the, the first part of the movie particularly seem to be setting a tone for uh, the, idea, the fact that this, this movie owes its existence to the adventure serials of bygone years at the cinema. So in the 1930s and 40s, you went to the movies. You didn't just see the main feature. You would see a cartoon. A lot of Disney cartoons, like the short ones with Mickey Mouse. Looney Tunes cartoons, the original ones, were shown in movie theaters. Um, Superman, short Superman cartoons done by Max Fleischer. Those were things that you would watch while you were waiting for the main feature to begin. And they would show newsreels. So the kind of thing that we see now online and your parents would have seen on the six o'clock news, are things that would have been shown at the movie theater. And so if you wanted to see what was going on in world news, you might go to the movie theater and see what the new uh, newsreel had to say. And then they would have this thing called a cereal. S-E-R-I-A-L, not the stuff that you eat. And these were episodic, cliffhanger, often adventure stories, done on the cheap. They were made for very little money, but because of this episodic cliffhanger structure kept dragging you back to the movie theater to see what happened in the next chapter, right? To find out what happens next, come again next week. And you might have to see the same main feature again, but you don't care because you want to see what happens in your favorite serial. Which, by the way, became television opportunities. When television first became a medium, one of the things that television studios would buy buy up was the rights to serials. And then they would show them again on television because they had that great episodic nature to them, which a lot of TV continues to have to this day, right? You get to the end of your episode and they give you a cliffhanger and you're like, damn, and now you got to watch the next episode, right? And that's how we end up binge watching everything. But these, these serials were made for very little money. They were, they were cheaply made. And it's interesting to me to see the sets in Raiders of the Lost Ark because while there is a semi-sense of realism or, as your text puts it, verisimilitude, we're going to deal more with that word in an upcoming episode, upcoming class, this set, this temple set looks fabricated. You can tell. You can tell this is not a real space. And I don't think that the production designers were slacking on their job. I think they were just like, well, let's do this as a bit of an homage to the movies that this is an homage to. Um, And what stands out to me is when Harrison Ford is just on the edge of the the pit and he's trying to get back up. You can tell that the stone that he's pulling himself up on is rubber. And we might go, well, that's just shoddy film uh, making. And I'm like, no, no, no. There are lots of opportunities in this film for people to get genuinely hurt while filming their scene. but I, I And I don't think necessarily that they were like, let's make it out of rubber so it looks super fakey, but that they weren't terribly concerned about that because they realized, hey, the mise-en-scene for this film does not have to be perfectly realistic. There was a, 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 de- a design sense that they went for that was like we don't want this to have any sort of futuristic 1980s glitzy glammy feel no star warsiness to it we want it to feel old we want it to feel classic we want it to feel casablanca but in a cinematic way and, and a cinematic sense of reality is different from real reality that leads us over to cinematography because the way in which you light something can, can heighten that sense of realism or weaken it. Sometimes lighting is really dynamic in ways that has nothing to do with reality, as we're going to see uh, in an upcoming um, moment from this, uh, from this film. The movie starts out with this great bit of cinematography where Harrison Ford is regularly backlit. We cannot see his face at the beginning. And uh, this is hard, I think, for many viewers to get coming to Raiders of the Lost Ark now because Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones is like the sky is blue. Like it's an obvious thing. We know Harrison Ford's going to be Indiana Jones when we finally get the reveal. But in 1981, Harrison Ford, was a, he was an up and comer, but he wasn't that big. Uh, he'd been in two of George Lucas's movies at that point, but he wasn't this huge star that he would become later on. So the, the, the camera tracks Harrison Ford moving along in silhouette along with these various companions. And the camera at several points focuses in on, as we see here, Alfred Molina playing one of his, one of his companions uh, and then this other re- unnamed companion who turns traitor on him. The camera is used to tell us that we need to be paying attention to these characters. We see the other porters and whatnot, but, but the camera doesn't focus on them in the same way. And we get this moment where the the camera does focus on the poison dart. And we get this great moment where Sepito, played by uh, Alfred Molina, says, oh, you know, this is three days old and one of those great, you know, over-the-top moments. But the camera is focused (laughs) there. If you look at that, you get this silhouette of the poison dart and then... Harrison Ford steps back into the shot and his hand is right where our eye needs to be to understand what's going on the screen. This has to do with something called eye tracing and good cinematographers in conjunction with editors are always involved in eye tracing, making sure that our eye is exactly where it needs to be to take in the information that we need to have. The scene continues to keep Harrison Ford's face out of the picture at the point that he opens up this map to see if they are where they need to be. And here I just want to highlight something that I'm going to talk about more in just a moment, which is Alfred Molina's facial expressions throughout this sequence are absolutely fantastic. I didn't know this until I watched a making of featurette recently, but Molina had never been in a film before Raiders of the Lost Ark. And if you know anything about Alfred Molina today, you're like, well, he's one of those great actors. He's one of those people that has been in a ton of films. But this was his first movie. He hadn't been in a film before this. But over and over again, he's doing this facial expression business where he's telling us, and this is one of the things that acting does in cinema, is that it tells us what we need to be feeling. So when he looks stunned, we feel that stunned look. When he looks apprehensive, we're with him there as well. We as the audience mirror what the actor is doing. And I love the moment when Molina looks terrified of these spiders and anecdotally the spider sequence was involved obviously real spiders um but he he tells this story that the spiders just sat there when they put them on him and Spielberg was like the spiders need to move around more and they're like well we need to introduce a female into the bunch before they'll move so they did they put a they put a female spider on Molina and at that point then the spiders went crazy and Action, look scared. And Molina said, you know, wasn't acting at that point. I was genuinely, I was genuinely frightened. But we look at his face and we know how we're supposed to feel about whatever's going on. Even if we don't, like the jump scare of the trap, the spikes coming out and the desiccated, unfortunate soul who was killed by it may not scare us today because it's not, we're, we're used to all sorts of scares and jump scares. And we've gone beyond what we see here, which is prosthetic makeup effects. And maybe it doesn't seem scary to us, but we know from Alfred Molina's face what we're supposed to be feeling. And that's a that's a part of cinematic language as well. I think, you know, we might think that cinematic language is all about the technical aspects. It's about what people design and then actors just step into that. But no, actors participate in that through their performances. Molina, again, Sepito, when uh, Harrison Ford is, is, is Indiana Jones, is getting ready to tip the idol off the, the plinth and... And he's got this look in his face, this look of anticipation, and and we, if we're buying into what's going on and we're pulled into and everybody's doing their job, we will feel that sense of anticipation as well. What, what happens next? And then, of course, when Harrison Ford tips it over, finally, I just love this uh, expression on Molina's face, like, oh good everything's okay and we as the audience may be fooled by that especially if we're young and that's something else to keep in mind i frequently tell people because we get old and jaded and cynical and like that film sucked i knew what was going to happen yeah because you've been watching movies for 30 or 40 years but you go to that same movie with a 10 year old and you're going to get that kind of experience that perhaps the film was even targeting at maybe it was meant for kids maybe it wasn't meant for you these are things that we should be keeping uh, ourselves aware of in, in terms of our analysis of film And then a film, you know, involves editing. The cinematic language involves editing. Cutting from one thing to the next. Moving back and forth between Alfred Molina and Harrison Ford. Back and forth between these two different perspectives. And we call that cross-cutting. That is a technique called cross-cutting. Just moving back and forth between those. But that means that there were two complete different takes, at least. But when we watch it, it all seems relatively seamless. And, And so when we've got Harrison Ford running away from the local tribe... Uh, and he's trying to get back to the plane the film cuts cross cuts back and forth between harrison ford as indiana jones and his pilot jock and just keeps jumping back and forth between those giving us these two different positions but that feels seamless to us because the film is moving in this linear fashion one of my favorite moments of this in the first 10 minutes of the film comes when one of Indiana Jones's companions pulls a gun on him and we get a shot of that companion's face as he looks like he's going to do something and then there's a close-up of the gun as it gets cocked and then there's a close-up of the back of Indiana Jones's head in silhouette the gun comes up the whip We see the whip down at Indiana Jones's hip, and that shot is like maybe a second. And then we see Indiana Jones's hand come back with the whip in it. And again, that's a very, very quick shot. Then the hand coming forward with Cepito in the background. A wider shot of Indiana Jones with a close-up of the traitorous hand in the foreground as the whip comes forward, a close-up of the traitor's face as ow, you know, this whip strikes him. But of course, didn't really strike him. I mean, that's something we want to think about is that, that all that actor has to do is go, ah, oh! whereas there was probably a stunt man involved for the moment with the actual whip. And there's also a good chance that that Harrison Ford's whip came nowhere near the stuntman's hand because of the way that. That the camera can trick us can lie and then the gun falling into the water and the sound and here we move from editing to sound the sound of a gun going off and then this hitting the 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 rock all of which would be generated by something called foley it's very unlikely that any of the sound that we hear there is the actual sound that occurred at the time. If you've ever dropped an actual gun on rocks, it doesn't make as satisfying a noise as they do in movies. If you've ever actually shot a gun, sometimes it doesn't make as satisfying a sound, especially as the guns in Raiders of the Lost Ark. All of the guns in this movie sound massive. They sound huge. All the gunshots are like, they're hyperbolic. And they've talked about the sound design for those guns. Very specific gun noise that they wanted that is not consistent with the actual sound of a firearm just want to jump back to editing for a moment there. When we think about editing, all of that happens in a blur. All of that happens very, very quickly. It just goes by at at this rapid pace, but it seems seamless to us. It seems like it's one thing, and that's the magic of editing. Being able to cut all these varied pieces together to give us this whole. And great editing can do amazing things with our emotions. It can bring us to a moment of cliffhanger and then cut to a completely different moment and we're left going, what happened to them? As in Raiders of the Lost Ark when Marion gets kidnapped, uh, you know, and we think she's dead. That kind of cliffhanger moment. Sound is essential. We think of, of film as a visual medium, but there is an awful lot that film does with sound i think especially about the moment that harrison ford taps the stone in the trapped room and one of these darts flies out from the wall and then it hits his torch and it goes but even even just pressing down on that stone it probably wasn't stone it was probably like a form of styrofoam or maybe it's wood maybe it is real stone but i've moved stone and stone doesn't make that big creaky noise all the time the sound of the dart flying out from the statue. In the real world, things don't make noises like this. Uh, When Marion hits her pursuer with a frying pan, if you actually hit somebody with a frying pan, it wouldn't make a tong sound. It's really hard to get a tong sound. Frying pans actually don't make them. And I know this because I I tried to generate Foley for a uh, thing that I was working on once, and we had to take a great big pot to get it to ring like a gong, Tong! right? So Foley is this, the, the way that sound is designed for film is a bit of a lie, but it creates this sense of, of a lived world that we are experiencing and we, we just buy it. Apparently, one of the Foley techniques for walking on snow is to walk on cornflakes. So, you know, you watch somebody walking on snow in a movie and you're like, that's exactly what snow feel, sounds like. Uh, but I was having a conversation just yesterday with, with some friends and we were talking about how cigarettes in movies have that really satisfying, crisp little burning, uh, little burning sound. And cigarettes in real life never do. Sorry, just uh, one last thing with sound soundtracks, the music. I mean, that's, I think, when we think of sound in movies, that's probably the first thing that comes to mind is a soundtrack. And at the very end of that first 10 minutes, the Raiders theme swells. John Williams, decorated score composer. Fascinatingly, John Williams is really more of a jazz guy. But he's made a lot of money making great film scores, great film themes. Although he says that some of the greatest ones that he ever did were, were, weren't his best work. He's like, nah, that's really simple. But Raiders, a friend of mine just said this on social media because I posted that I was going to be doing this today. And he said, you know, whenever I see Indiana Jones, I hum the theme song. That's, that's high praise. But it also speaks to how powerful the sound of music is in film. How much music matters to us. Uh, and uh, you can see on YouTube a, a fake trailer for The Shining, which is a horror movie. And it's done as though it's like a, a family romance. It's like, a, a, like a, a family film. A film about a couple getting their problems worked out. And it's, it's, it's just by editing and sound, everything is changed in terms of how that feels. How a scene feels has a lot to do with the music. What is a movie? It's a product of culture a product of culture. And I suppose that some, again, coming back to what I said earlier in this lecture about, you know, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, is this a, by those those designations, is it a movie, is it a film, is it cinema, is it important enough to be studying in university? And as I thought about this movie, I was thinking about cultural readings of films, social readings of films, which are very, very popular. And my students love to do them, you know, to, to read a film through a social lens, to read it through a cultural lens, I prefer to use formal analysis as a way to get there though. Like I, it's not just me reading wherever my culture is at onto the film but rather saying what is the film actually doing and how do I know that it's doing that? How does it how does it how do I know whatever it is that I think about this cultural reading that is true? And as a product of culture, this film made in 1981 is fascinating for its casting of Karen Allen as Marion Ravenwood because she's so feisty she is easily one of the strongest female characters in action films in blockbusters of this time some of you say well what about Carrie Fisher as Princess Leia Carrie Fisher's Princess Leia isn't half as feisty as Karen Allen as Marion Ravenwood is that's partially by you know how she was written Uh, they can only you know go so far as with with how they were written but apparently there was a, a, a sort of improvisational relationship between Allen and and Spielberg in terms of how the character would would uh, perform and you see this in the first shot that we see with Marianne and this is done with uh, what's called a Panaglide camera this form of steady cam technology and they're gonna come in on a crane this, in t- this is one long shot and this is something else that we don't notice when we watch movies is are there cuts or is it what we call a long take? And a long take is a big deal because it's a little bit like acting in theater that in that you, you don't get a chance to cut away uh, when there's a screw up. You have to make the whole scene work. So the camera pushes in towards this crowd who are watching Marion and this Australian uh, he's listed as that in the credits, by the way, Australian sort of adventurer in a drinking contest. The camera pushes forward and, and then it moves over to the left to see that Australian adventurer take the drink. Pushes just a little bit more in, focuses in on him before turning back around to show him put the glass down on the table before Marion does the very same thing. There's a little bit of like parallel poetry going on here that the camera shots mirror each other. You might think like, well, this is obvious. This is obvious, how is this, why is this analysis? Because she's doing the very same things he is. And in 1981 for a woman in a movie to be doing the very same things as an adventurous character in the movie that's a big deal and then she fakes her inebriation right and the camera stays on her for a moment and all these hands come into the shot and this is a little bit of what we call cinema verite something that george lucas employed in the original star wars film uh, something that a lot of the directors in the 1970s engaged in which was to try to make the movie feel like real life by doing things like having hands get in front of the action, that there was, there's something deliberate about this move. And then she says, no, 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 I'm all right. And things get back to it. Now the camera moves back in the other direction. She firmly places that that shot glass down. Uh, and we have a sense to some degree through pattern recognition of what is about to happen. If we've seen a bunch of movies, we know what comes next. But I love the way that the film plays with this. It comes back up to the Australian Adventure's face. He takes his shot. And then the movie pauses just long enough. For us to go, oh, maybe he's not drunk and we're going to do this again. But no, he just rolls back ever so subtly into the crowd, completely inebriated, and Marion has won. And that's the moment at which, and that's the the, ne- the very next shot, that the film finally cuts to another moment. But what has this got to do with this as a culture product? Well, this is, as culture product, is talking about equality for women in cinema. And while there are moments in Raiders of the Lost Ark where there's certainly what we might call regressive or not progressive moments, I would argue that I think that the entire film is very progressive especially for 1981 far more than the other indiana jones movies would be and far more than many films of the day in the same genre i noticed this in the moment where indiana jones walks in and we get this moment of lighting where we see him as shadow and we should know by the way that that this is great fakery this is uh, the, the film trying to make a, a nod to the noir movies of yesteryear where shadows would, would show what was going on. Like you could show somebody getting murdered in shadow and that wouldn't, you know, the ratings board wouldn't lose their mind over it. And so we see Indiana Jones come into Marion Ravenwood's bar in shadow as silhouette. The, the, the location of the light and the location of the person that would have been casting that shadow along with all the shadows that come after it would have to be off to the side of where Karen Allen is standing for that shot to work in the way that it does. And you might say, well, what has this got to do with anything? First and foremost, film is a lie. It's always lying to us. It's always doing things to emulate reality, to give us a sense of verisimilitude, to communicate its ideas, but it does it through all sorts of forms of trickery. But then the camera pushes up to the point where Karen Allen is as big as Indiana Jones's shadow. And I think this is significant. She starts out quite small next to his shadow but then the camera pushes in and she is as large as he is it's a visual motif that is reinforced when she punches him when he tries to be all smooth and she slugs him we might say today well why why not she can do that she's a woman she has every you know yeah but in 1981 that was a big deal we're like wow you know marion ravenwood's tough and my my older sister there's always a barometer for these things for me because the, the the women that she admired were women who could be on par with men in a men's world. And and Marion Ravenwood was one of those those hero, those heroes. And, you know, this is the way that this film communicates these things is through these moments. And it's done with a combination of mise en scène, if we take a look at Alan's costume—it's—it's coated as you know. She's got masculine clothing when we first meet her. Her hair is pulled back. She smokes. She blows smoke into Tote's face. She is tough as nails. And the point at which Tote, the 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 Nazi uh, stooge who comes along to try to extort this artifact from her. The point at which he goes to take this poker from the fireplace and burn her with it—well, the male hero in many in many films would be shaken by this. Certainly in this movie, because in as much as Harrison Ford is tough, he's a bit of a goofball. I mean, you just think about how scared he often is. His swashbuckling moments are often ungraceful. I mean, when he falls into the water at the beginning of the film, his hat gets all dumpy. So. She is she is on par with with Indiana Jones in this movie in, in many ways. She's firing a gun uh, early in the film. She's smashing guys over the head with flaming logs. And then somebody might say, but wait, wait, wait." She's sexualized later in the movie. Yes, she's put into dresses that complement her form, no doubt about it. But you got to think about this particular shot where she's looking in the mirror when they're on board that ship, and she's got this slinky dress on. And we could talk about that being sexual. But what's the camera doing this for? Does it linger in a way that's salacious? Is this male gaze? Or is it the setup for the joke when she pulls the mirror around and completely clocks Harrison Ford in the face? Certainly she has her moments of fear. And we might say that that's coding it as sort of traditionally feminine when they are trying to escape from the well of souls. And there's no argument that I can make to to push back on that. But I think we have to contrast that with scenes like her in the marketplace when she grabs the frying pan and clocks the guy when, you know, he chases her. And we certainly have to... contrast that with the moment that she's in the airplane uh, manning the machine gun firing the machine gun and working things out and if we com- if we contrast Karen Allen to Kate Capshaw in the very next Indiana Jones film we certainly can see just how progressive Karen Allen as Marion Ravenwood was so when we think about this from the perspective of culture as a culture product we can have this sort of conversation about gender about identity about how women were perceived at the time if we look at other movies from the same period that are in roughly the same genre, adventure movies and whatnot, and the way in which women are sexualized in the posters, are sexualized in the films themselves. I mean, my God, Bo Derrick in Tarzan the Ape Man was basically an excuse for Bo Derek to run around in the jungle with no clothes on. To think of that movie as an adventure movie is a, a, an insult to adventure movies. Uh, and James Bond films, obviously, obvious, and maybe shooting fish in a barrel in so far as the uh, as, as this goes. But when we compare what's going on there, we can see that kind of a shift. And then movies are an art form influenced by emerging technologies. And what's the emerging technology? Well, there's a number of, you know, one for visual effects, right? But what visual motif in particular, what 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 type of technology do we see uh, over and over again in Raiders of the Lost Ark? Well, it's the reason that I wasn't allowed to see it when it first came out. I was too young to see a movie where there was this much uh, blood, as far as my mother was concerned. The These effects... Uh, so the you know guy with the spikes sticking through his face at the beginning, sapito, dead sapito. This is what we call um, prosthetic makeup effects, and these were coming into their their own uh, in 1981. There had already been a, a spate, and I mentioned this in my previous podcast episode on *Sword and the Sorcerer*. That there was this wealth of films, mostly werewolf movies, that utilized this type of special effect and we've got the moment in the bar when the guy gets shot in the head, and, you know, all this blood pours out, and why would they do that while he's lit on fire? Because it was this new technology where you could light someone safely on fire, and we hadn't seen that a whole bunch in movies. They talk about that in one of the featurettes on, on stunts in the Raiders of the Lost Ark movie, that they did so many things with the stunts and, and, and wild moments that, that they weren't able to do them in later uh, other films because then it would just seem like, well, we've already done that and nobody's really interested. So you get this gory moment when this guy's head blows wide open. Uh, and that was a big deal in 81 in terms of like explicit violence. And so again, that's prosthetic effects. Why would we do it? Well, because we can and it would be super cool. And then you get at the very end of the film, the apex of prosthetic effects in this movie are the the trinity of of the bad guys belloc tote and dietrich all melting or exploding and it's it's worth taking a look online to to find out how they did this involved uh heating up Uh, sculptures of these actors in a oven and then filming it in time-lapse speed to have their faces melt right off. I'll tell you, that blew my mind when I first saw that in the theater. That just completely floored me. I thought that was the coolest thing ever. My mother was so worried about me. I went to see it. I was like, wow, his face melted off. And Tote's face melting off was on the cover of magazines like Fangoria. Fangoria. This was a magazine devoted really to Horror films and prosthetic makeup effects. That's what that film, that's what that magazine glorified in, and it was a popular magazine at the time. And Tote's Face Melting Off made the cover. So we see this relationship to a technology that was emerging at the time Belloc's head exploding and all these chunks going all over the place, all about that moment in technology. And sometimes there are decisions made in filmmaking where they decide to do it simply because. They can. And, and, and the chase sequence where Indiana Jones goes under the truck is one of those. I An mean, opportunity, is something that they could do, so why don't we do it? One of the uh, the stuntmen, Terry Leonard, improvised the idea to go under the truck. Because he had wanted to do that stunt as an homage to a stunt done by a famous stuntman from the 1930s. He did a lot of serials, but he also starred in a famous Western called Stagecoach. He was a stuntman in Stagecoach. I shouldn't say he starred in it. John Wayne starred in it. But his name was Yakima Kanuk. And there was this point at which he goes down under the entire stagecoach and climbs underneath it. And Terry Leonard had wanted to do an homage to that in a film version of The Lone Ranger that was made in the 1980s, but things went wrong and it didn't go well and it had bothered him. And so he said, hey, is there a way that we could incorporate me going under the truck for the scene where there's, you know, that for that chase scene? And Steven Spielberg was like, sure. Because if you look at the shooting script, It doesn't say that happens. So that was improvised by Terry Leonard saying, hey, I'd like to do this. And so sometimes cinema is about what can be done. And technology has a lot to do with that. Why wasn't Lord of the Rings made as a live action film before Peter Jackson did it in the early aughts? because the technology wasn't there yet. So Terry Leonard comes up with the idea, they shoot this and it becomes an iconic scene. And we think of it as being like, how could you have Raiders of the Lost Ark without that scene? But it wasn't even in the original shooting script. So the basic construction of a movie as uh, just as a set of terms that we're going to need for upcoming classes, for upcoming lectures and, and episodes, Shots, scenes, and sequences. What's a shot? A shot is an unbroken span of action captured by an uninterrupted run of a motion picture camera. Now, sometimes a shot gets cut up into other shots. So editing will take those shots and move them around, but, but sometimes we get, a, you know, an entire what we would call tape. A shot is an unbroken span of action captured by an uninterrupted run of a motion picture camera. And if you watch the, the chase sequence in, in Raiders of the Lost Ark with the truck and the horse and going under the truck, trying to get the Ark back, you're going to see how shots and scenes and sequences work. Editing puts all those things together with a transition from one shot to another. We move along with the characters through time and space. So we get shot after shot after shot. And this is all one shot here. Harrison Ford getting on the horse and riding away is all one shot as the camera on a crane lifts up above and moves out. And then we get what we would call scenes or scene, a complete unit of plot action taking place in a continuous time frame in a single location. There's a scene right at the beginning of the chase where the truck rolls up to load the arc on. And if you pay close attention to that scene, the shots in that scene introduce every one of the vehicles and the groups, the villains as it were, that Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones will have to fight in the ensuing chase scene. And if you read the script, which you can find online, you can go to this part of the movie and and take a look at the descriptions for those scenes and for the sequences in this film, because they don't always match up perfectly. That first part, it says, From among the tents, Indy suddenly burst into view, happily astride a magnificent white Arabian stallion. Harrison Ford isn't happy in this scene. He's doing something else. And so there's, there's often a, a shift between what the script calls for and what the film does. This, the script talks at many points about mountainous terrain. We don't get as much of that mountainous terrain uh, as we might think and that might just have been the dictates of where they could go and film that scene in a way that would that would be doable that they would actually be able to achieve. And once you take shots and you combine them into scenes, you can take those scenes and you can combine them into sequences. And so again, if you read through the script, you get a number of scenes and the scenes are indicated by numbers. And so, you know, the the, you you were at scene number 114 exterior the desert indie uh, cuts cross-country avoiding the road the convoy has taken and then that comes to scene 115 exterior desert row the convoy is entering rougher country and scene 115 just goes on and on and on in the actual movie and i think this has a lot to do with what they filmed in this sort of improvisational way with the the stunt actors and whatnot and that just, that continues for quite some time. And then we get scene 116 where the, the vehicle goes off the cliff. And we use scenes, they combine scenes to create sequences. And the sequences are longer necessarily than a scene, but sometimes a scene and a sequence can be the same thing. If it's a, it, that, that shot, the, 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 the extended shot, these long takes that I talked about earlier, then, then a shot can be a scene in a sequence as well. So it gets a little murky. But these are terms that we're going to want to have so that as we're, you know, we're having the conversation about film in upcoming classes, upcoming episodes, we understand what we mean. And as i say this this sequence with the chase yeah uh, we call them chase scenes they're almost always chase sequences it just goes on and on scenes 114 115 and 116 and if you take a look at the the script they really extended scene number 115 but we know when it ends it begins when indy gets on the horse and rides off to get the ark and it ends when he's finally got the truck and he drives off into the distance as belloc and dietrich are angry in their car and you know we got to go after him and get him and that's basically when that sequence comes to a close. So we want to know that sort of language as we move further into the into the course, further into what we're going to be talking about in this course on film narrative. So that's Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I know that I wasn't talking about all the ins and outs of the film. That's really not the goal of what I was going to be doing today. But if you're like, gosh, you know, I'd really like to hear you talk about some of the behind the scenes stuff or some of your own observations, those kinds of things. I can do that in an upcoming episode. It's not going to be anytime soon because as I announced last uh, episode of the podcast, uh, I said I'm going to be doing my course content for the podcast, for the time being, it's just a it's just a way of of maximizing the work that I'm doing and, and getting the most out of it. So I hope I hope that this is you know enlarged your idea of how film works, uh, and that you're looking at it through new eyes. Next time on the podcast, uh, we're going to be taking a look at a film that isn't even remotely within the wheelhouse of science fiction, fantasy, or horror. We're going to be taking a look at the 2019 version of Little Women and it's an absolutely fabulous film. We are going to be talking about movies and the podcast is ultimately about the, the narratives that we read, watch and play and Little Women is certainly one of those spaces where we're going to be able to talk about that relationship between reading and watching. So thanks for tuning in. Thanks for coming to class. Thanks for being here and I uh, look forward to meeting up with you again next week.